Welcome to the Apollo Social Science Podcast, where we explore the borderlands between healthcare and social science. In each episode of this podcast, we speak to a researcher who's working in this space to hear about three books, thinkers or ideas that have influenced their research journey. So today I'm really glad to welcome Alison Thompson, who's a senior lecturer in patient public involvement and public engagement in science, based at the Wolfson Institute of Population Health at Queen Mary University of London. Alison, do you mind saying a little bit about your um, professional background and what you're working on at the moment, just to introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, firstly, thank you so much for having me. This is so exciting. Um, I so yeah, so I'm based at Queen Mary University, and I'm actually a design researcher. Um, so what I do is use design and design as a method and form of research to explore patient experience. For the past um, ten longer than that years. Um, it's been around people with multiple sclerosis um, and I've done a few different projects looking at different types of long-term conditions and different health situations but yet yeah, really around patient experience and how that as a concept and a very practical and emotional thing is done very differently within worlds of healthcare everyday life, um, design practice, lots of different ways of doing it and thinking about it and how we can improve it and think about it in different ways. Thank you so much and I'm really looking forward to hear about your um, three ideas that you brought today and I just want to say at this point that um, anyone listening to the podcast who just wants to get a little bit of flavour of, of some of the work you do, one thing that I loved looking at was your work on the Digesting Science website which is um, a really beautiful way of learning a bit about MS and I don't know if that's going to come up today but um, I'll, I'll put I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well because um, yeah I've never seen anything like that and it is it's a really cool way of engaging with some quite complicated stuff. Um, so the first idea that you've brought today that's had an influence on your thinking and your trajectory is the book Designing Interactions by Bill Mogridge. Um, would you be able to say a little bit about um, how you came across this book and uh, what it's meant to you? Yeah, um, so the book came out I think around 2006 and I was doing my undergraduate in design at the time and I was very much figuring out what kind of designer I wanted to be and this book came out and it really spoke to me because it was about designing interactions and those words um, kind of interaction design was really flourishing at that time and I thought well this isn't is interaction design it's designing interactions and just that flipping of it made me think well I don't really quite fit in with interaction design so could I fit in here so I started to look at the book and went through the different chapters and it's really nicely written because it's interviews with different quite iconic designers and as I was going through the book, um, there was quite traditional interaction design of computers, laptops, the mouse. Um, and then as I went on, it started to kind of expand a little bit from developing product and technology to think about more conceptual types of design and what you could do with design thinking and also design um, different types of methodologies to explore working with people in different ways. So it mm. focused back around from the technology or the tool or the thing you were designing to thinking about the interaction you were making between a person and an idea right. or a person and a system or a person and a, and a service. 
um, or people together and how the focus of the design wasn't the object or the thing, the chair, the table, the fabric, the clothes, whatever. Yes. It was the focus of that interaction and then what happened from that. Okay, okay. Is the, like, just a really basic question here. Um, like when we're talking about design as a, as a field, what, what is that in, encompassing? Yeah, I mean, I don't even know. Um, yeah, I think design's massive. I mean, obviously, historically, there's kind of arts and craft or architecture or, you know, things, objects of design. And around kind of, um, kind of when I was studying undergraduate, there was design thinking came around. So it was less about the object and more about the quality of thinking using design. Right. Um, but that quite quickly became quite commercial mm. and something that was sold as products and things you could do so it didn't have to be the designer doing the design thinking and so that craft of it came away from the skill set of someone with that design education okay. um, and I think what really spoke to me about this book is it kept the personality of the designer unique to them and their way of viewing the world which is much like an artist so specific to their subjectivity, their context and their reaction to what they were thinking and seeing, but using design and that it would, would include other people to have a purpose. Right. So, and this is where I found it quite interesting with that specific type of design, which I went on to learn was critical and speculative design, was um, still about fulfilling a purpose, but that purpose wasn't about selling products okay. or completely solving problems to make the world a better place. And I'm doing that quotey thing in the air <laughs> that people can't see. Um, and it wasn't about creating a better place because that better is always based on perspective. Mm. So you want to design better products, but not everyone is going to receive the product and see it as a positive thing because of lots of different situations and reasons. Yes. And so this type of design, um, which is very much expanded under my understanding as design research, starts to question the context of the, when you're doing that design. So someone might think about you know, solving a problem, but mm. actually there might be an undercurrent of selling products, right. making more stuff yes. that we don't need. Um, whereas more explorative types of design are about asking questions and asking sometimes quite difficult questions, political questions, mm. um, controversial questions, which companies might not like, or um, you know, other people might shy away from. And as a designer, you can frame those questions, you can start to create situations, design objects or design scenarios where you bring other people in to you know, engage in your idea and have their say in that as well. And that's a very um, strategic act. Yes. And for me, that is, that is how I design. Okay. And that's how I frame design. So it's quite different from other forms of design. And this book opened up that door yes. to think about designing as something. It's not just making stuff, putting it out there. Can you, because I, like, I've got to say, before I came across some of your work, I definitely just had pigeonhole design in a way I'm sure lots of people do. I've like, that has something to do with products you, you know and you know yeah I, I guess a fairly um, narrow way of looking at that would you mind giving us like an example of maybe some work you've been involved in or just a particular um, a particular story about this sort of design that kind of moves away from that just to to give us a sense of, of, of what that might look like played out 
Yeah, um, so I can use digestion science, since you mentioned it, as an um, example. So, I mean, the project unfolded um, quite organically. There was a need, um, and the need was that the um, MS service didn't have any resource that they could use, like information resource that they could give a parent who had been diagnosed with MS to give to their child to explain, this is the condition that I have, you know, this is what MS is about. Um, at the time when we set the project up, there was charity information, so there were storybooks, but there was nothing interactive um, and there's nothing digital. So we did um, quite a, a long process of design and development and creative exploration, and we ended up designing this project called Digesting Science. And it's uh, framed as an educational event, like a Saturday morning, coffee morning type thing you might go along to, very happy, clappy and positive. Um, and families can come together and learn about the science behind MS. So um, how does MS affect your bladder? How does it affect your vision? How does it affect your walking? How do we treat MS? And how can we potentially prevent MS? And so on one kind of lens, when you look at it, it's an educational event. It's like going to the science museum. It's very fun right. and supportive and families come together and they learn about the science behind MS. But the other side of it is that we recognise that vitamin D research was coming out, which potentially um, could suggest that if you're at risk of developing MS, so if you're a child with a parent with MS, then if you take vitamin D, it might reduce your mm. risk of developing MS. And so then this other need of a health intervention came around. But because the science wasn't totally concluded on that, and it's still um, a little bit up for debate, it it meant that we, we couldn't, you know, people couldn't just start making health interventions around preventing MS, take vitamin D. We still can't do that now, kind of yes. 10 years later. And so we felt as a research group, there was a need to open up these conversations to suggest we should start to talk about prevention, we should think about prevention. But because the scientific evidence wasn't there and still isn't there, we can't go at it from a public health campaign side of things. So what we were able to do was put the vitamin D information into these games. So we created a board game where children would sit down with their parents and uh, roll a dice, pick up tokens, it's like a Monopoly style thing, okay. and um, collect a lot of vitamin D tokens. And then they would learn that if I take vitamin D, it could potentially reduce my risk of developing MS. And so we kind of packaged that piece of information as this interaction, which feels happy which yes. feels very fun it doesn't feel like you're sitting in a science class and it doesn't feel like you're sitting in a clinic mm. or a hospital you know we, these events have been run across the country and they still are being run and they happen in very kind of friendly saturday morning football clubs type spaces yes. and people are learning and talking about science but in a way that they never would have thought of yes and so it was about us putting that message message and having that conversation in a very accessible way that would allow a four-year-old to turn around to their parent to say, now I understand what MS is. I understand why you're so tired. Yes. Um, and yes, I'll take potentially the vitamin D supplementation that you suggest I should take. Okay. Um, you know, four-year-old obviously doesn't say it in those words, yes. but you know, we've evaluated it to say that people are coming away from the events thinking about vitamin D supplementation. So mm. a roundabout way of, of how we've tried to do that. That's a really good example. So, so like, I guess the 
yeah, the, the simple lens is just, oh, look, here's a package of, um, you know, the things that have been designed are the board game and the day and the website or whatever else. Yeah. But actually, there is design that's going on there, but actually you're thinking on the level of what, what space and conversations and, yeah, a space where uncertainty can be um, allowed in and can be created through the way in which people interact with these different these different tools so so yeah. it, it, it's your yeah you're designing the space that's created around all those things as well as the individual yeah. items is, is that sort of yeah and also because with a child with a parent with ms they're very hard to reach in that they don't have ms yet they yes. might not get ms yes. and so it's this kind of future thinking of a patient in potentially 20 years time so how do we set up prevention before someone's even got a disease, before mm. they're even a patient. Mm. How do we think about doing some of my recent work is thinking about how do we do PPI with people before they are patients to mm. think about how they'll then think about how they were potentially approached to take part in a study around prevention. So it's this kind of really having this expanded idea of how we work with people and think about a potential patient experience, which I think is really interesting. Um, and so for the children with a parent with MS, I mean, the NHS service, our MS service is set up to deal with people with MS. So they've mm. already had their diagnosis. So to, to get to the children with a parent with MS actually has turned out to be quite difficult. But because the project exists as a, basically a public engagement project, we can start to engage with local um, carer networks and through schools. So we can start to reach people in different ways because that piece of information operates as a different... Um, it has a different agency in a way, yes. opposed to a health intervention or a piece of scientific evidence because it's a board game. Yes, that is cool. Thank you. Is there anything else that you want to say about this book or any, any other way in which it, it spoke to you? Um, about the book? I think, yeah, really, it was really nice to see all of these um, designers who were doing lots of different types of design, but they were all male. A lot of them were male, okay. and the female um, designers that were in the book were doing empathy stuff, working with humans, okay. and the, the, a lot of the men were doing all of the kind of technology development stuff, but I didn't recognise at the time, but I think that's had quite a big impact on me, okay. um, and yeah, I think when we go to the third book, we'll see how, okay. Okay. how and why, but yeah, I always thought that kind of always... Yeah, it was a bit of an underlying thing in my, my education, that it right. was a lot of the designers that were up on the pedestals and were talking about their design were men. Right, right. Okay, well, that's a good, that's a good foreshadowing of idea number three. Um, thank you. So idea number two um, is a book that I have actually read, which I think is the first time I've been able to say this on this podcast um, with a, a guest who's come on. It's The Body Multiple by Anne-Marie Mole. Um, can you tell me, um, yeah, how did you come across this book? What were you up to at the time? And um, how did it speak to you? Yeah, so I uh, started my PhD. I am, at the time I was doing projects like Digesting Science. So I was very much doing... Um, practice-based design uh, with the MS clinical team at Queen Mary University and Royal London Hospital and the professor that um, I was working with at the time and still do a lot of work with um, Gavin Giovannoni said you know you should do a PhD I thought oh god 
I don't even know what that means. Um, and after a while, he, he said, you know, you know, you need to write up these ideas. And for me at the time, it was enough to have the ideas, you know, existing in the projects. But the problem was, is that the way that those ideas would travel would be stuck within the projects. And so apart from me talking about it um, or someone interacting with the project or press around a project, that was never that knowledge, that contribution wasn't written down. And so that really brought me to writing about it and writing it down. Um, so I started a PhD and um, I registered that with, with Goldsmiths, with the design department there. And they have very close links with um, sociology department and they have a huge history in science and technology studies, actor network theory. And so this book, because of it being kind of medical anthropology and also the huge STS um, kind of grounding in it, was one of the first books that was given to me to read. Mm. And... Um, before that, the other kind of STS texts I've been given were kind of impenetrable. They were very kind of, you had to know the language to understand um, what was going on. But this book just opened up everything for me um, and really gave me a place in how I could think about and talk about um, theory, yes. but also the situations I was seeing. I had my kind of dine, my design response um, of how I would what I how I how I would want to intervene in a clinic with patient experience, but I didn't I wasn't able at that when I started anyway to articulate how I would theoretically intervene. And um, Anna Marie Moll's uh, an incredible writer, and the way that she conducted her ethnography in um, the Dutch hospital was just amazing. So she was studying atherosclerosis and she was seeing the, the kind of the body the physical body in front of her but then she was going across departments looking at the scans and looking at the patient notes and looking at the different versions of the disease in the body and that um, quite nicely was par- quite parallel to what I was doing with MS so I was seeing patients in the clinic and observing them I was looking at um, kind of the scientific data on how patients' responses and walking distances were changing um, when they were being measured in a clinical examination, and then following that data through to the scientific publications and following that to um, medical conferences, and then looking at how the pharmaceutical companies were taking that data and presenting it differently, and then how designers would come in and take that data and respond to it and make a clinical intervention. And then how that was then received by patients who'd received that intervention. And so I was quite, I was able, I was seeing this world happening in front of me. And I was seeing how design was used and seen as this problem solving thing. Co-design with patients and things will be made better. But actually co-design is a very problematic thing in itself. Um, And it has to be set up and framed in a very specific way for the design to actually happen. Mm. And so for me, um, this book allowed me to articulate what exactly I meant by patient experience in the different worlds. So what the um, neurologist meant by patient experience and what the trust and policy documents were saying about patient experience with patient, patient reported outcome measures were very popular at that time. Um, patient surveys responding um, to, to questionnaires about their experience. Was it positive? Was it negative? Um, and as we know from social science, you know, surveys then go on to perform and create 
the things that they want to measure. Right. And so it's these different realities of patient experience were kind of coming to life in front of me and I was being um, I was kind of being enacted into that world as well by a, as being a designer. So I was seen as someone that would come in and could improve a patient experience. Okay. But actually, I know that that's quite unrealistic um, and problematic because who am I to improve someone else's experience by designing more stuff? Um, so it, that, that book really opened up that world and allowed um, me to figure out a place that I would have in it as a researcher to yes. articulate what I meant um, and then also articulate the problems that I saw. Right. And, and how those weren't easy problems to solve. And she, she does an amazing thing in that book where one of the things I took from it is, is that she says, you know, atherosclerosis isn't just a thing, but it's something that's done. It's like a collection of practices that, that are formed around the same word, atherosclerosis. But actually, if you were to go into any other, one of those spaces, you'd see things that only partially overlap, if, if at all, it's basically so, so the person looking down the microscope and the person in the operating theatre and, the, and, and the, the patient who comes along with the symptoms. And... Um, is that the sort of thing you were seeing then when you followed along um, each of these people through this kind of research process that, that there was some overlap? You know, we're still talking about something similar, but they, it was different things at different times. It, would, would that correspond at all? Yeah, it, it did completely. And for me, it was about you know, validity and um, knowledge and in how one space you know, a patient account is taken as this in one space, but then in another space, a patient account means something else. And when I was in the clinic, I was listening to patients tell their story and I was seeing the healthcare professionals record that and, and treat them and respond to them. And then I would trace that response or that data to, say, a scientific conference where the accountability, and, you know, there's an economic thing as well mm. because it's drugs, you know, it's right. clinical trials yes. and it's funding and seeing how that data is then um, plays out and how that in itself is quite performative. And for me, I mean, I, I was fascinated by that and how looking at the scientific conferences, how the data is done there okay. um, what happens in the agency of that across different um, forms of visualisation, for example, so the graphs and how they are sometimes representing things that maybe weren't as impactful but because of the way that the graph is displayed yes. the data then comes across as more impactful for example um, and, and again that is a way that design has been roped into that situation okay. by how things are visualized yes. so we are not impartial people when we come to visualizing things you know we, we have a, 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 play, a part to play in that and I don't think that we're always aware of that yeah that's um, even the phrase you use there of how data is done. I, I think that would have been something that a few years ago I would have thought, what does that mean? You, you know, what, how can you do data? But it's, it, it fits that, that, yeah. that actually there is a doing at each yeah. of those stages, not just a neutral, you know, wheeling out this same thing over and over again. Yeah. It's, it's... And I think it's interesting because the, the neurologists that I've, I've worked with for a long time, I mean, they know, they, they get it completely. And they agree that, you know, we're not quite sure what this is, and, but we know this. And, we, and, you know, and a lot of the conversations we have in our research team, well, we're not quite sure yet, but we think this. Mm. But when it comes to a patient or we come to thinking about what do we know about disease, what do we know about data, what do we know about health, it's presented as we do know. Right, yes. And we, we do know what we're doing. But yes. actually, you're not quite sure sometimes. Mm. And 
um, one of the very first, um, when I was the very first thing when I was starting about MS, a very um, experienced neurologist said, well, we're not quite, we don't actually know what MS is and we can't completely tell if they have MS until we have a look at the brain mm. once they've died and then right. we can physically see everything. And it's like, okay, you know, are we quite sure what's going on here? And so me saying that as a designer, what would be quite fantastical, um, but with Anna Marie Mole in my pocket, yes. I could break it down. Okay. And for me, that was just brilliant. Um, you know, if she could go into those spaces and talk about different ontologies and different realities, um, then I could as well. So yeah, I found it really, uh, really exciting. I also wonder, I'd love to know what your thought on the design of how that book is presented as well, just because I I, um, I really like the way, for, for those who haven't read it, it's, it's, it's a book where it's sort of a book of two halves, so the top half of each page is what she's seeing, and then the bottom half of each page is sort of a conversation with the top half, but where she's bringing in theory and different ideas. And I, it's not like it's not like a set of footnotes. It really is. It, it works kind of differently to that. And um, I just I'd be interested to know from a design perspective what what you made of of that. Yeah, I think it's brilliant, and I'm surprised there's not more books like that. Um, I'm sure her publisher <laughs> didn't enjoy that process. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know if they pitched it that way. I mean, it would be interesting to hear how that book was created, if they maybe pitched it as this idea of this book of two halves, literally almost, um, or if it was a decision that was then made later on where they had footnotes that actually expanded. But yeah, I mean, I remember after I first read it, I then my next supervision reports, I split things up in different fonts. Um, And I think I suppose, I think I did, that did influence my final thesis because I ended up writing about different versions of patient experience and I labelled them with different numbers. um, And then I used a different font to highlight them throughout the the document. So I suppose it did rub off on me a little bit. But yeah, um, as far as kind of, medical text go, I think it's definitely one that has to be has to be explored as a physical object yes. as well as a kind of theoretical yeah, treat. One other thing I wanted to come back to that you mentioned was about how um, co-design is sort of taken for granted as a good thing um, by most people who come across it and certainly as someone who's fairly new towards this area, I've thought of it as the, the possibility of tokenism, I guess, I've, I've, I've been aware of, but I sense that there might be more to it than that in terms of how, how co-design can be used for not fully good ends. Do you mind expanding on that a bit more about, about yeah, co-design and its problems? Yeah, um, so I mean, co-design is about power and it's about change um, and you want to bring people together Um, with different types of accountability and different types of experience and knowledge and skill um, to collaborate, to make change. Um, I think that sometimes that's maybe underestimated how difficult that is. And um, because change has to be made at the end of the day for it to be a transformative process. Um, But in saying that, the context has to be ready for change. Yes. And I think sometimes it's deployed as a process um, that underestimates the impact of that change. For example, mm. if you bring people together and they and you say we want to make an app and the first thing they say is we don't want an app, then what are you going to do? Yeah, okay. If you've 
got funding to make an app. Yes. Um, and I see that very often. And yeah, so I think that um, it sometimes it is underestimated. And then that's where I feel that the tokenism comes in because you're not then putting value to people's experiences that yeah. they're going to bring you. And you can't say that people um, didn't participate when they did participate, but you weren't listening or you weren't prepared to listen. Um, I come from a kind of, my relationship with co-design is very pure from a Scandinavian tradition of, um, it's from, you know, about creating democracy within companies, within groups of people, where the, the change was already set up. So the people that were participating were part of that system. Okay. And so they were able to change it. And I think that's quite difficult in health because to change anything, you have to have, yeah, it's just so big. Yes. And I think that when um, the context of, I mean, I think it's very different doing it in small community projects or where people are able to create change. Um, but when you're asking patients to come together and they're, giving you suggestions, ideas for change, and you don't have the capacity to make that change, then I think it becomes quite difficult. Yes. And then inauthentic. Yes. And I guess it's very, yeah, it's very easy to set up a conversation that sounds like, you know, we're open to everything. And, and maybe even someone who's having that conversation really is going to do whatever's in their power to be quite radically um, malleable and sort of go back and apply for a different grant or whatever. But even then, I guess even with all of their power, um, that might still not be enough to yeah. actually bring about the sort of questions and themes that are coming up. Yeah, and I think sometimes it's people maybe underestimate what they think the power of change can be. They maybe think change has to be tangible and change has to be um, something that can be measured, which is something that we're all under a... Uh, um, under pressure to deliver on. But change, I mean, if I go back to ideas from perspective of critical design, I mean, change can be changing someone's outlook and perception of what they see as evidence. Right. And if that person is a consultant neurologist or is a data scientist, and that then expands and changes their practice, then that is actually quite impactful. Yes. Um, and so it's about being open to other forms of change, um, which I think sometimes we are limited by when we think about doing something within the same you know, field. Okay. When we stay within our own discipline and think this is the only outcome that I can have because I've been trained in this way. But if we collaborate and go across disciplines, then we can think about different forms of outputs. Um, I think that's something that we've started to think about with our Apollo books. Mm. And let's talk differently. We're thinking about creating a, an output which does something differently and goes beyond what we thought we'd originally create, but actually is moving into other fields that it can go beyond a clinic or a GP surgery, and it can create change which might encourage someone to have a conversation in a different way. Yes. And that, that becomes very difficult to measure, yes. but it's still creating change. Yes, that's a really good example. Do you mind just, for, for those who aren't so familiar with the Apollo project and what those books are, do you mind just briefly saying what, what they are and, and the sort of conversation you hope will come from them? Yep. Um, so the, the the project we set out to do a piece of co-design um, with older adults who are on um, multiple medicines um, and have multiple long-term conditions. 
Um, and we set out on a co-design process and halfway through the process, or, or actually before that, early on in the process, it wasn't going in the direction that we thought it was. Um, we were asking people to come up with suggestions and tell stories about um, talking about their medications differently and uh, being able to go into a GP surgery and say to their GP, I'd like to reduce the medication that I'm on. Um, we thought that that would be quite an easy conversation to have, but it turned out that the people that we were working with in the co-design process weren't able to articulate that. That what they were able to do was talk about lots of different ways of having conversations about their medication, what it meant to them. So we ended up, um, Deborah and Nina that we worked with on the project, um, they ended up writing a series of stories which were about these kind of alternative narratives around having conversations about your medication. Um, and these weren't a patient walks into a GP surgery and asks the GP to reduce their medication because we knew that was a very difficult conversation to have. Nice. Um, these are stories about people living with their medication and doing things slightly differently to how we might imagine them as solving that problem. And the stories are written a little bit from ethnographies that Nina and Deborah conducted, um, but also a little bit from speculation about how we imagine um, different ways of dealing with medication might play out in the future. And these books um, are visibly designed as um, small leaflet booklets that someone might be able to read through in five, ten minutes. Um, and we hope that they'd be used in um, conversational settings of, for example, age UK meetings or community settings or potentially in a GP waiting surgery. Um, and something that we're keen to explore is how uh, intervention like this might trigger the idea that whatever relationship you have with your medication, um, either taking it all the way that you're meant to take it, um, or maybe not taking it all the way that you're meant to take it, and that's okay. Yes. Because it's about opening up that conversation about what you want to talk about with your medication, with your healthcare professional. Um, so again, it's not a straightforward solving of the problem. I want to reduce my medication, I'm going to walk in, and here's a list of the ones I want to come off, because that's impossible, and, and um, there is evidence to say that, that those conversations don't happen. Right. So we've proposed uh, an object, a tool, a situation, we've set up, we're trying to set up these situations anyway, where people can sit around, read these stories, and have the confidence to talk about how they deal with their medication and what that means to them. And then hopefully that will then enable a conversation, a different type of conversation to have um, with their healthcare professional. That's brilliant. Thank you. Is there anything else you want to say about the Anne-Marie Mole book before we move on to the third idea? No. Okay. So the third idea, which we, um, we return uh, to the fact that it was mostly men, at least those who were doing things that weren't directly to do with empathy in the first um, book, The Design Interactions. And this third choice of idea is the book Living a Feminist Life by Sarah Ahmed. Um, could you say a bit about, um, again, just, just what were you, yeah, when, when did this book um, come into your life and into your thinking and um, what difference has it made? Yeah, so this, um, I was lucky enough to hear Sarah Ahmed talk about the book uh, when I was at Goldsmiths doing my PhD. And um, she kind of blew me away, actually. It, I didn't expect 
um, that to happen. And she was talking about her relationship to the institution and her relationship to her research topic and um, to who she is as a, as a person um, in the way that she lives her life and conducts her, her research, her teaching and um, her life. And when I read the book, it really resonated with me on my journey in academia, actually, and who I was and who I wanted to be. Um, and I think because, because I was studying healthcare professionals and I was studying um, kind of clinical scientists, and their relationship to their profession and the institutions that they work within, either an NHS trust or a university, um, and to kind of science, is very clear. And I think with design, it's a little bit more muddled. Um, so there's the, the role, who you are, do you set up a company? Um, less, I mean, the field of design research is quite small and how you conduct yourself, the kind of ethics and the code of that is unwritten in a way. Mm. Um, and I felt that when I was doing my research, I would go along ethical processes. So I'd do the NHS ethics, I'd do university ethics. But then as a designer, we have our own ethics of what we think is appropriate and the ways to conduct design. And so when I heard, heard um, Sarah talk about how you then engage in a situation, you as a person, then that actually opened up lots of other things. So I knew that I, I mean, at the time and still now, you know, I'm a, a female going into conversations and sitting in on clinics and listening to people share their stories of their experiences, knowing that those aren't equal spaces because mm. a lot of the healthcare professionals are male. Mm. And then a lot of the researchers doing qualitative work are female. So how does that then skew what comes out of those situations? How we interpret that information? Um, we did a bit of work looking at um, the number of uh, neurologists that were female um, and looking at who was on the, the programme at conferences, giving talks at conferences, okay. um, who's setting the agenda. This is kind of before the EDI boom mm. of the past kind of five, six years. And yeah, I think it just comes back to a lot of these ideas and, and that role model thing of who you see doing the work, because it's not just them doing the work, they're asking the questions. Yeah. And those questions are coming from their interests and their experiences. And if it is uh, a skewed interest to one gender, then that is going to then dictate a research field. So I look back at interaction design, and if it is one gender doing all the tech development, then that's going to skew the types of products, the type of situations, case studies that come forward. Um, and so when I heard her talk about this and when I read the book, there is this strong sense of accountability in not just how we conduct our research, um, but in the questions that we ask. And the first part of that is kind of acknowledging yourself, who you are, um, and the other thing that she has and she talks about is intersectionality and how that um, should be really taken seriously when we navigate in these worlds. And I think that for me, working in a university um, and having worked in the same university for a, quite a long period of time, I think about how I want to navigate that and the systems that I'm subject to, but also the systems and the processes that I'm part of creating now. Yes, yes. Can you give me an example of that, like of, of what it's, I don't know, just, just how, you, how you found navigating being part of an institution um, and 
where it might, I don't know, yeah, where, where there's decisions to be made about, yeah, how you, especially as you are in more of a senior role, how you, how you go about that. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think it comes down to, I mean, I think the thing that Sarah does really nice is she makes it every day. And that's why she calls it living a feminist life, because you, you have to think about these things every day. And so for me, you're going on maternity leaves, having a break from research, um, coming back after maternity leave, two maternity leaves and a pandemic, that skewed the, the contacts that I had, um, the, you know, the, the offers and the opportunities that I had to take on PhD students, or to apply for funding, or to be invited to give talks. Um, and that makes me then think about the processes that were there or not there to support me through that. Right. Um, makes me hugely aware of other people going through that process and how you can sustain an academic career across career breaks like that. It's not just maternity leave, it's other types of leave as well. But then it also makes me think of the engagement and the involvement work that we do and who we're asking and when we're asking them to participate. Are we doing that in appropriate hours? Are we doing that in appropriate spaces? And again, there's been a huge um, highlight and focus on that post-COVID as well. But I think we could still think beyond that to think about are we asking people to do things which are appropriate to them and for them, but also we shouldn't shy away from topics that might be of relevant for them and we presume that they're not relevant because of a certain situation. Um, So it's definitely something that I try to create and do and redo as part of my everyday conducting my research but also being part of of an institution. I like what you said as well about how it speaks not only to how we go about doing our research ethically, but also the sort of questions that we ask at the start. Again, we could ask for an example of like how that might play out in terms of the, the yeah, how, how the questions that you might ask in research could be affected. Um, I think that the, the most obvious example isn't directly from my research, um, but it's from our um, Centre for Preventive Neurology and the work that Dr. Ruth Dobson does um, around pregnancy and MS. And so more women than men get MS, yet the amount of research into pregnancy and MS is, you know, it's very, very minimal. And less than that, I mean, not all women will decide or be able to become pregnant, but I think, I I don't know what the statistic is, but almost all women will go through the menopause. And so the the amount of research even into menopause is even less. Wow. And that is, uh, I mean, that kind of knowledge is now circulating the MS field, but it's quite shocking. Yes. Well, it is, no, it's very shocking. Yes. Um, and so that's the kind of, the medical field and the scientific field waking up to that uh, gap in equality of research. Um, but it's also seen in the genetic data um, and other things about who's being asked to be involved, who's coming forward with ideas. Um, we know that PPI practices of asking patients to come forward and give us their experience to um, influence and shape research processes and research questions, that sometimes isn't done as fairly as it should be. Um, so it's definitely something. I mean, I think, it, I think in where we work, I think that we're quite aware of that, but it, I don't think we can ever underestimate how important it is to really think that through in, in, in everything that we do. Mm. 
Yeah, that's really striking. I, I, I remember someone speaking to me a while ago in hematology where it's my sort of clinical background in and just pointing out how little effort had been made at all into working out better formulations of iron, which, you know, um, iron supplements are needed by anyone who's iron deficient, but that is in, in kind of broad measures, it's either women or it's people in um, poor countries um, where iron deficiency is rife, whether you're male or female. And the, yeah, so little had been done. We, we, we still had exactly the same few preparations of, of, of iron when actually it's, it's, it's a very legitimate question to be asked, but it just hadn't been, been seen that way. Yeah. And, and um, I, I guess, is, is that the sort of thing you're talking about here as well, where it's just whose who's care is getting spotlighted to even become a research question? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we are aware of it now. I mean, it's come out in the COVID inquiry with not having mothers or people in the room that had caring responsibilities or they weren't heard and they weren't taken seriously. We've seen it in um, kind of ergonomics and design with cars and seat belts and the body that was used is a male body. Right. Yes. Um, we've seen it in, I mean, close to my heart, marathon running, where the water bottles are made for a large male hand. Okay. And it's wow. only now one manufacturer's coming out with a slimmer bottle for a female hand. We yes. see it everywhere. Um, and again, it's, it's something that's right in front of us, but actually it's something that we can't think that's done. And I think that's something that Sarah Ahmed articulates much better than I can. It's not seeing that as we've ticked that box. Right. And so she calls out that as kind of, I can't remember what it is, but it's kind of non-performative or unperformative or because we say that we know about EDI means that we're doing good EDI, but actually we're not. Yes. And so it's not thinking that we've already ticked that box and we don't have to do it anymore. And it's that non-performativity that institutions can... Um, it can are quite bad at actually because they've got panels that will deal with situations they think it's already done and solved but actually we all have to have accountability for these issues thank you so much well i really appreciate your time today it's been really really fascinating so thank you thank you so much for having me thank you and thank you everyone for listening in and uh, we'll be back with um, another episode in about a month's time <laughs>